The following program is brought to you by the Baker and Baker Foundation and is a production of the Columbia Museum of Art. Hi, and welcome to the More Than Rhythm podcast. I'm Dr. Brigitte Johnson, host and ethnomusicologist. Hello and welcome back to Binder Podcast special episode celebrating the CMA's More Than Rhythm, a Black music series hosted by Dr. Brigitte Johnson. I'm Dr. Johnson, and I'm very excited about today's episode and the chance to speak to our guest, Dr. Tammy Kernodal. The More Than Rhythm series is going into its third season, and we can't be more happy to continue our companion podcast episodes this year. We'd like to thank our audience who come out to see us in person, but also our growing podcast family who tune in, like, click, share every episode of the behind the scenes nuggets and really thought provoking conversations with our artists. In our first two seasons, we covered the gamut of black musical genres and styles from sacred music, hip hop, jazz, blues, soul, folk, and even classical music with a great group of artists and bands. This season, we want to take it up a notch and really look at how Black music always finds a way to go beyond the stage and studio, to touch the lives, and even help change the world we live in. In addition to being uplifting and inspirational, Black music is also and always given a voice to Black people, often speaking or singing truth to power at times when it could have cost them their lives to do so. Black music has often carried coded messages of resistance and protest, just as it has carried messages of affirmation and self-worth. For our kickoff this season, we wanted to bring in someone who could embody and masterfully impart the power of Black music to change society. And I think we have just done that, hit the mark with our guest today, Dr. Tammy Kernodal. A native of Danville, Virginia, she's a pianist, a singer, arranger, choir director, speaker, and musicologist whose work concentrates on the contributions of African-Americans to classical and popular musics, as well as jazz history and gender studies. She is the author of Soul on Soul, The Life and Music of Mary Lou Williams, and a distinguished professor of musicology at Miami University at Ohio. She has served as a consultant to institutions including the BBC, National Public Radio, Jazz at Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center, the Rock and Roll Hall of Flame in Cleveland, the American Jazz Museum in Kansas City, and she was a part of the team that constructed the inaugural musical exhibitions at the National Museum of African American Culture and History in Washington, D.C. Her hands and genius have touched so much of how millions have engaged Black music over the last few decades, and More Than Rhythm is honored to welcome to the Binder Podcast, Dr. Tammy Kernodal. Welcome, Tammy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Regina, my sister. Thank you All for, right. for introduction, too. Hey, I told you I was going to bring in like Steve Harvey. I was going to bring it in like Steve. I could say more. I could say so much more. You have done so much in music and American music, and you've served in so many capacities. We're just so happy to have you on the series. Also, our Binder podcast episodes, because of how many parts of Black music you've touched and American music you've touched, over the years as a scholar, a researcher, a musician, singer, all these things, a consultant, you've been in documentaries. And so we were very excited when you said yes to us. And of course, you're coming back to Columbia again for a second time to wow us with one of your performance pieces. But before we get into that, 
Um, I often ask a series of questions when we get into the podcast episodes. And because you're coming to Columbia to do a variety of genres and styles, I want to just pick out one kind of chief influence of Black music. Often when we think about Black music and music in the Black community, the influence of the Black church and music in the church always seems to come up, no matter what genre we do. Even when we were doing classical music with Nicole Neely, she talked about how her father would play classical music before they went to church. And so I would like to know from you, what are some of your experiences in church spaces that has shaped you as a singer and musician? Wow, uh, that's a wonderful question. I would have to say that the church really is the essence of everything that I am. Not just musically and not just spiritually, but it's in my walk. It's in the gate of my walk, what I mean, you know, mm-hmm. not just the experience. It's in the language that I speak often. You know, the church was just really the incubator, kind of the midwife of my consciousness as a musician and as a scholar. You know, I did not know or realize until much later how much the church had fueled my historical lens on American music and Black music in general. I attended a Baptist church with my parents, a very traditional Baptist church that, you know, sang anthems. We did arranged spirituals. We did spirituals in the folk idiom, and we did a lot of contemporary gospel. But I had a great-grandmother, my maternal great-grandmother, whose parents were slaves, former slaves, was very much uh, a part of that consciousness. And she attended a Pentecostal holiness church. Mm -hmm. Even as a young child, I understood the differences in the music. I understood the differences even in the edification of the gospel, how the pastors would preach and the cadence and the sound. And so, you know, even now, years later, decades later, I can still hear the heels of those sisters' shoes on those wooden floors in that Pentecostal holiness church. Right. Those windows up. And, you know, and those voices were amazing. And those women just guided and pushed the rhythm and pushed the essence of worship through their music. You know, and occasionally there was a guy there who would play uh, electric guitar. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and so the first time I really, really heard Mississippi Delta Blues, I was like, wait a minute. That's how that man played in my right. great grandmother's church. So, you know, it was a mixing of all of those different idioms that I was being exposed to that was really formulating my sound world, even though I didn't have the language to distinguish what those things were. So the church was the essence, really the birth of Tammy Kernodal as a scholar and a musician. Wonderful, wonderful. And I love how you said this is kind of this nexus of different sounds, because now we think about what happens in church. We have maybe two or three streams of sounds. But back in the day, you could literally hear the roots of blues in the church. You could hear the roots of rock and roll in the church. You hear jazz in the church. And so a lot of young musicians now in jazz studies get in trouble when they come in with a lot of gospel background because they say you're sounding too gospely when a lot of those things are overlapping and, and this kind of amalgamation of black sound culture coming out of the church. It's fingerprints everywhere.
Okay, so I was also thinking about the piece you're bringing here, because like I said before in our other episodes, we've done with specific genres, and your piece you're bringing, um, She Sang Freedom, touches so many genres. What was the inspiration around that piece? So She Sang Freedom is actually a sonic journey through the history of resistance culture in America, Black resistance culture in America with an emphasis placed on women's voices. You know, when we think about the sonic history of the long civil rights movement, you know, we typically amplify the oratory and the voices of men. And that's because the movement was rooted in the church. And so those politics of patriarchy and leadership intertwine. And, you know, and so many of the voices that were always amplified in the public consciousness were those of men. But music was a way in which women in some ways occupied a space and not just the movement itself, but shaping the ideology of the movement and promoting the ideology of the movement. And I say the movement, but I'm meaning this continuum wave of resistance and protest that has existed in uh, the American experience since 1619 to present. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking about that framework of the long civil rights movement and how we've had these different waves of activity. Music has always been present. Whether we were singing collectively in the act of what we think of as freedom singing in the 60s, what most of us think about as a civil rights movement, or whether it was the individual voice being offered in a moment of resistance and protest, right? And so this particular program was really an extension of work that I had already started in terms of really looking at the role of women in this long history of struggle for civil rights and racial reconciliation. I'll be honest with you. This was not something I ever intended on doing. I never intended on shifting to performance. You know, I really had focused primarily on writing that history and excavating that history in a written form and, and, you know, doing necessary musical analysis. Because I felt like there were people that were writing on certain voices, but not really looking at this longer arc of activity that women were engaged in. You know, we talk about Billie Holiday and Strange Fruit. You know, we'll talk about Nina Simone and Mississippi Goddamn or... Aretha Franklin and respect. Mm-hmm. There's so much to this, that history. There's so many layers. There's so many different genres of music. And so, you know, I was tapped into it in that way. But um, in and around about, I think, 2014, 2015, I was asked by Chris Miller at the National Underground Railroad Museum here in Cincinnati to do a program for Women's History Month. Mm-hmm. And he knew I was a musician and a historian. And he was very specific in his ass. He was like, you know, we don't want you to just do a lecture. You know, could you possibly weave it into a performance or whatever? And my little trio, we had been playing in and around Cincinnati for a few years. 
And so, you know, I just came up with this idea that I was like, well, yeah, you know, I could kind of trace, you know, these different points in history and how women have engaged with music, you know, to either resist or to, you know, articulate anger or resistance or, or protest. And uh, we did it. And that time I was calling it everybody saying freedom, right? Started with Harriet Tubman, you know, because we're right there at the Ohio River and started with Wade in the Water and brought it forward all the way to the 70s. And we stopped at Roberta Flack. And, you know, Pack House, the reception was amazing. You know, I never expected for people to really respond in the way that they did. And people started posting it on Facebook. Like people were posting these clips on Facebook, right? So long story short, I was asked to do it again, and this time more in a club setting. And I was talking to the person. She was like, let's switch the name up. Let's call it She Sang Freedom, you know, because you're only dealing with these women. So it resonated. Right. I tell you, uh, Bergita, the timing of that was very important because Mm -hmm. I was in the midst of writing, but I was also in the midst of crisis. Mm. So this performance in some ways became part of a period of healing because Mm. when you're reading all of these uh, civil rights histories, when you're going through all of this historical past and you're reading about trauma and the violence, and you think about the timing of this, you know, this is also the time when, you know, the Black Lives Matters movement is Mm -hmm. already uh, manifested. You know, we've got Sandra Bland, we've got Tamir Rice, we've got on and on. We're seeing Mm -hmm. this carnage, this trauma being acted out on black bodies. And so the intersection of this dealing in this historical past and you're also experiencing this present became too much for me. Mm. And like mentally couldn't write like I completely got blocked and I couldn't even deal with it because I was like, it was just too much. Right. You know, it's too right. much. emotionally. So in him asking me to do this, what he didn't know was that he was finding me a pathway for healing and another way of engaging. And so, you know, through the working through this repertory, you know, I've curated about. 12 songs. And so there are different iterations of She Sang Freedom because, you know, there are just certain things you don't do in the for school kids. I wouldn't do Strange Fruit in a presentation, you know, because this isn't just music. It's also images. There's also a little bit of video. So Mm -hmm. it's a collective kind of experience. And so, you know, it just started to morph. It started to grow my ability to understand these women a little differently and to understand the whole act of freedom singing took on a different dimension. And so it just, it took off. Yeah. I love social media. Social media will pull you out or pull something out of you that you didn't think you had. It is wonderful because like you said, you know, in a moment where there's so much coming at you as far as what was happening with those movements on top of all the Black Lives Matter, you also had Me Too going on. You had so many things, so many reckonings happening. And because of social media, it was always in your face. I know people were taking social media fast at the time. They kind of deal with the trauma of always having it in your face. And then you have someone pull you into the history, into the repertoire, into the how we got over of the things, right? And so you mentioned going from Harriet Tubman to Roberta Flack. How much freedom do you want when you go from literal escape from bondage 
with singing involved until the 70s when people are like, are we free yet? No, we not. We got to keep fighting. We got to keep marching. And so to look at the testimonies of how, how people made it through when singing was for survival and then singing became strategy. And then as we see how the history has been written, the singing has been now for representation. In my classes, I often ask how many women were on the platform at the March on Washington. Whoa. And so the kids always say, oh, Martin Luther King Jr. and blah, blah, blah. They, they start naming men, 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 men. And then I was like, do you notice you didn't name any women? I mean, women were there. Women helped organize it. All those planes and trains and buses and everything getting booked, those are the hands of women. But the, the actual voices of women, they were there as well. We don't think about when Josephine Baker is there speaking on behalf of the French government. And when you have, you know, Mahalia Jackson in the background, the voices are not coming as these lecturers and sermon givers, but they're all around. They're all in the midst of this two-day massive protest movement. And then you go back and have them look at the actual meetings when people were organizing these protest marches and sit-ins and how singing played a role there. And the singers tended to be male and female, but the leaders of the singers, the song leaders, Bernice Jensen Regan, the, you know, the SNCC singers, every region had a singing group or a protest group that sang. And they tended to be female voices kind of galvanizing people to get up and go march somewhere where you can literally get killed on your way back or on your way there. And so that moment where you're being faced with the triumph of the people who came before you through their works, through the words, their music, it has that, like you said, that healing type of way to kind of cut through the noise. Even with all our technology, just going back to those old songs. And, and like you said, you have 12 songs. I'm not going to ask you what they are because I want us to be surprised. But we're not going to do 12. We're not going to do 12. <laughs> Listen, hey, you, you, got, you have 12 in your bag. <laughs> we you, got 12 in the bag. And, yes. and, and, you know, the idea is to make people hear. Right. Women different. And to hear the, the voices that you think, you know, very different and to uncover some voices, you know. So we bring in Fannie Lou Hamer, mm-hmm. not as Fannie Lou Hamer, the orator, the great orator that told us that she was sick and tired of being, being sick, sick and tired. tired. Mm-hmm. So we bring in the song leader, Fannie Lou Hamer, mm-hmm. you know, who, you know, working in that Mississippi movement, brought a whole nother repertory of songs to those young college students who came to Mississippi under the banners of SNCC and CORE and was following in the footsteps of her mother, who she had seen not necessarily mass mobilize the community for the sake of voting rights, but to mass mobilize the community other ways through song. What she's saying freedom is also tapping into. It's been this long legacy of, of black women as cultural workers mm-hmm. who have used, you know, uh, different forms of creative expression as a means of nurturing our communities, but also helping give birth to the next generation of voices, you know, through their engagement with be it dance, with being music, be it poetry, be it literature. You know, we can look at our communities and see these women who've always been present, who've been keepers of our history, but speaking to the present and nurturing, you know, these future voices.
Hey, y'all. Uh, producer Drew here. Shivering away in this winter chill. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for spring. Uh, that's better. I'm glad the Columbia Museum of Art has a plan to start the season off right. With four dazzling days of botanical beauty, Art Blossoms returns for its fourth year, featuring floral interpretations of works of art on view throughout the CMA galleries. Enjoy the return of fan-favorite events like Roses and Rosé, art classes, and live demonstrations with special guests including acclaimed artist, floral designer, and author of Punk Ikebana, Louisa Roebuck. Tickets are going fast, so reserve yours today and celebrate the start of spring at Art Blossoms, March 21st through the 24th. You can find more information on our website, columbiamuseum.org. And now, back to the show. woman named Fanny. She often talked about the experiences of black women that seemed to be left out of the speeches of other leaders of the movement. She talked about their exploitation as workers, but most of all, she often shared her experience of having been given a Mississippi appendectomy. See, that was a very fancy way of saying how she had been forcibly sterilized. It was a common thing for women in Mississippi to experience this. You go into the hospital for one procedure, you come out sterilized. Fanny wanted folks to know what was the real experience of being a black woman a black woman sharecropper in Mississippi. So we're going to take you into the church, into the mass meetings, into the energy of the church, where Fanny would take those simple songs and turn them into rallying cries for freedom. Y'all all right? All right. You can clap, it's all right. We're going to take you into Mississippi. I want you to just think about those sisters with those heels on those wood floors. All with them church fans. Saying y'all better sing. I want Jesus to walk with me. 
I'm thinking about, like you mentioned, like this legacy of black women as cultural workers with the successes of people like Beyonce and Taylor Swift, these albums and these global tours and these concert films and all the opportunities they're bringing to women in the industry. They even kind of named it the year of the woman because of how much they were, I guess, commercially galvanizing and pushing the industry forward. Um, I guess the question would be, do we still have a ways to go? I think we always have a ways to go, mm-hmm. you know, because in, in some ways, you know, what we see is that we take a few steps forward, but we always, in some ways, unfortunately, get pulled back, you know. And part of that has to be the mechanism that we utilize in terms of disseminating much of our popular culture, right? How many women do we have in the C-suite and making these decisions and how many of those women really have power, but also how many men who understand the importance of diversity and experience and voice, how many of those are the shot callers or, you know, the decision makers? And I think that's important. As long as the industry is in the business of making money, I think we will always have this push and pull where we will feel like we have made some strides, but Mm -hmm. then at the same time, we will recognize we have not made strides. You think about last year. The unfortunate thing about last year is that the conversation about the economic, cultural power that a Taylor Swift and a Beyonce was wielding got muddied by them being played against each other. Speak on it. As if they were uh, competitive or competitors. Mm-hmm. You right. talk two different women who are dealing in two different genres with maybe on the surface what seems as a similar audience base, but they are really cultivating two different communities. They might at times overlap, but they were cultivating two different musical communities. And so the industry does what the industry does. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is anytime you have women who are operating outside of the gendered realm that we think that they should. And anytime that we have women who are exhibiting extraordinary business acumen and intellectual ability, we then devalue them Mm -hmm. by framing what they're doing around the emotional. And so, you know, they did what I expected for them to do. To mm-hmm. play these two women off as if they had some kind of competitive fight going on. And they were changing our world as we know. This is true. I remember watching the film and Beyonce mentioning how many female or women she had on her crew because of the three stages they were rotating at the same time. She said, I've never been on a tour and seen so many women on the crew. She's the boss. She's why they're there. And I, I love how you framed that competition. And I think them as artists, they saw it because when... Taylor Swift's movie came out, Beyonce showed up at the premiere. She had just gotten off tour. And of course, when Beyonce movies came out, Taylor came to the premiere. So this idea of the younger female artists knowing the game and putting it back in their face. I remember looking at how Cardi B said, you guys don't support us. You don't call our names out. You, the ones you say you want to hear from, you don't call their names. We're not in competition. You criticize me for being stripper hip hop, but you don't support the hip hop female rappers who don't do it. And so I think the younger generations are getting very bold as well as savvy around speaking truth to power as well as the mechanism of the industry. And so that has been interesting to see. And 
watching students kind of witness what that looks like now versus back in the day. If they pitch you against each other, they basically let you fight to the death and then they kick both of you out of the industry. Exactly. So, so the mythology of the exceptional woman. There's a whole lot of places at the table for men, but there's only one place for a woman. There's only one seat for her. Right. And so we're going to make the female artists fight to the death, as you said. You know, because nobody was talking about the male artists that were on tour last year. Nobody was com- was no, comparing, yeah, comparing Bruce Springsteen to Ed Sheeran. You know, right, right. So, no, and and so that's it's always interesting to me how and and I and when I say the industry, I don't mean just record companies. I'm talking about journalists, journalists you know, who who are looking to make a story, and there's much more of the story is what you saw in business magazines. I was looking at what Forbes was saying. Right. Mm-hmm. And how these women transform the GDP. Right. Of everywhere they went. Yes. Everywhere they went. Now internationally. Does these communities, economic, we ain't talking about that. That's business. But we don't want to talk about that because, you know, those were two women, you know, right. did that. You know, right. not to mention the fact that they were empowering Speaking of a, a message of inclusion, right, that is resisting everything we see happening in our current political culture. I wanted to bring it back to when we think about artists from She Sang Freedom. When you have a Harriet Tubman who is using music as a strategy as she's freeing people from literal bondage. Thinking about people like Roberta Flack, of course, we know her for Killing Me Softly. But in this moment when she's singing in the 60s and 70s and 70s in particular, when African-American women in particular are trying to find not only voice in American society, but even within the black community. Can you say more about those? Because I'm getting towards the multi-genre aspect of She Sang Freedom and how you're pulling from all these wells of Black music. Can you speak more about pulling from these different genres? And, and was it even difficult to draw from so many styles? I remember I heard jazz and blues and soul, a little bit of rock in, your, in, in some of the iterations of She Sang Freedom. How was that pulling from those wells? You know what? It was about the story. So I started with the story and I asked myself, what story do you want, you know, people to leave with? You know, there's there's some through lines. One is that, you know, black music has always been the incubator in which we have planted our narratives of protest and resistance. You know, and that started from the very beginning, even when we weren't singing Go Down Moses or we won't sing in Wade in the Water. Those melodies and those rhythms and the very nature of how they were being interpreted, you know, in this new world experience was about resistance. You know, that was about you're not going to dehumanize me mm-hmm. because my voice is still going to be present. My body, you can take away the drum, but the drum's rhythm is still in my body. It's still going to amplify itself. And so I'm still going to live on. I'm going to live on. And the fact that we pass these things orally, 
meant that we were literally taking out of the mouths of each other, the essence of who we were, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that she's saying freedom is about is illuminating that, right? This resonant power of black music to articulate and enunciate who we are as black people in these spaces where we had tried to, you know, people have tried to erase us, make us invisible, whether that is just in a literal form of trauma and violence, or if that's just been institutionally by boxing us out. The other through line that I hope people hear is the message of transcendence, because music has always been the portal of transcendence for us, be it in the church, be it in the field hollers, out in the fields, you know, be mm-hmm. it in the, um, the juke joint. The juke joints, the the blues clubs, the jazz clubs, all of those spaces, right? Our thing was to resonate that particular message. And so in moving, you know, what I did was try to build a framework of telling that story through these women's voices. So we literally moved from a Harriet Tubman into looking at, you know, early 20th century and how at the turn of the century, you know, you black folks are dreaming new worlds and new identities takes us into the Harlem Renaissance. But in the heart of the Harlem Renaissance and people ingesting our culture to the point that, you know, they they deem the 20s the jazz age. The jazz age, yep. Jazz is black music, right? But they are lynching us. They want our rhythm and our blues, but they don't want us. And so they're lynching us. So, you know, we take you into a strange fruit so that, you know, you hear what strange fruit means. And we then take you into the manifestation of that with the Emmett Till. And you thinking about, you know, how does a 13 year old boy get on a train to go to visit relatives and comes back in a casket? Right. right? You know, and so we're telling these stories through all of these different genres in these different ways. And so we're going to take you into the church, into the mass meetings. We're going to take you on the stages of the folk movement and bring you into what was the environment of a Nina Simone, you know, has this moment of consciousness and becomes one of the most ardent voices of the 1960s and really marks what is this shift in what was black popular music at that time? Because before you had people in jazz and blues culture and the folk culture, you know, like Odetta, who were singing these songs of resistance openly. People were coming to see them in nightclubs. But most mainstream black music, R&B, was staying away from that. Right. Because mm-hmm. these artists thought that they would lose their audience. And so you got Nina Simone, who's coming at the top of a celebrity. Right who has this crisis moment, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, Mississippi goddamn, and becomes entrenched in the movement. So Mm -hmm. much so, you know, that she starts to give birth to these message songs, right? So when you think of the whole soundtrack of the late 20th century, right, it's a message song after message song after message song, right? And not just women, but Nina infused and tapped into the anger, Because for the most part in popular black mainstream crossover popular music, you didn't get that anger. You couldn't really embody that vocally and in your text. And she told us, yes, you can, you know, 
And so you think about what happens after that and how that leads us into what eventually becomes hip hop. So you're going to hear some of those songs, you know, uh, Aretha, you know, everybody thinks about respect and no, I'm not going to sing respect. (laughs) One of those 12 songs, you know, but, you know, Aretha has some very coded ways of embedding herself into this movement culture. Right. 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 Uh, And her covering of some of those songs that people within the movement, uh, uh, you know, uh, ground zero on the front lines, the battle lines, you know, they identify with certain songs as being part of that soundtrack, that manifesto of resistance that was being built through music. So she covered some of those things. And, you know, right. mm-hmm. bringing the staple singers, like it's so much that folks are going to hear. A little bit of funk, a little bit of soul. We're going to do some real gospel. So, you know, folks need to come and be ready to sing. And Oh, yes. That's one thing about More Than Rhythm. Um, surprisingly, people have come out and they sing. I wasn't surprised, but I've been in Columbia for a while. I know we're kind of, I wouldn't say conservative crowds, say maybe shy crowds. And so when More Than Rhythm hit and we start doing these events, people were moved to participate with our artists. And so they never had to beg people. They would just say sing it. And of course, we were like, wow, they're singing. They're clapping. They won't leave. They want to sing some more. And I think it, it kind of points to the era we're in now. We're post of the lockdown part of COVID. And people want to be together. And part of being together now, it's also people singing together and making music together. And they don't have to be, you know, the best singers. It's the fact that you're in a room together and someone agrees with what you're talking about. As you mentioned, Black music being this portal of transcendence. And I believe that's why Black music has become so global and cannot be stopped. You see Black music taking over charts all over the globe. And to the point where now Grammys are even recognizing African musical performance, the actual roots. And you see this transcending crossing over because even if you did not have ancestors who were enslaved or had to go through Jim Crow, you have these messages of the hope and this kind of power of resistance that a lot of people need a soundtrack for. And so as you go to see things like she's saying freedom, it resonates with them on these other levels of how this music has been the inspiration for so many other movements outside the Black community for decades. I wish I knew how it feels to be free. I have one more. I love to ask this question as well, because a lot of times to your earlier point, when we think about, you know, black artists and black musicians, even black female musicians. Sometimes the, the mood is to point them out as this so-called singular genius, as opposed to being a part of a community and a continuum of music makers and, and people who are putting things and being you know, pouring into them. And working beside them, you know, the collaboration aspect of it. So for you, as a scholar, as a multifaceted musician, choir director, all these wonderful things that we know you do, what is the role of collaboration for you as an artist? You can talk about, you know, for She Sang Freedom, but how does collaboration play out in what you do as an artist scholar? Ooh, you know what? It, it is, is key in all of it. You know, the writing part, I, I often do in collaboration, I have writing partners, right? You know, and where we have designated times where I'm kept accountable, right? They keep me working and moving because it's this, this work 
means a lot to me. It is not just the project that I decided to take on. At the very beginning, and I'm going to come back to your collaboration question, but I want to say this. Very beginning of your introduction, you said that I was born in Danville, Virginia. And Danville was the site of a very bloody civil rights battle. You know, and I was born some six years after SNCC first came to Dan. Hmm. And so I grew up in the residuals mm-hmm. of the movement. So this project is very personal for me because it is not only pointing back to that, but when I first got hired at Miami University, I had no idea Miami University Western College Program was the site for the training of the 1964 Freedom Summer Project, you know, and that this was the place that Fannie Lou Hamer and Bob Moses came and the church that I was minister of music for, there were people there that were present when SNCC came for those training. In fact, one of the deacons that was there actually repaired the station wagon that James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwermer took to Mississippi. He repaired that car for them before they left. And he told me that story. So it was like those two aspects of my lived experience were intersecting mm-hmm. and calling me to something that had already been latent in me because I've always wanted to write about some aspect of the civil rights movement. But, you know, that call became more and more louder. And so, you know, when I talk about accountability and a collaboration, you know, part of it is my writing partners keeping me engaged and saying, you can't give up because this is difficult and a very layered story to tell. So it's not one book. It's got to be many books because you got to deal with all the different genres and different facets. Right. 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 But the collaboration also comes from the musicians because You don't get up there by yourself. You know, you got to have people who invested in the vision. And so the bass player, you all going to hear Tanya Cox. Tanya has played with me uh, for probably about 15, 16 years now. So, you know, I can say we're going to do Roberta Flack trying times, right? She'll say, we're going to do it like the record. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, (laughs) you know, first of all, we'll do it the same key as Roberta Flack. And then, you know, like, we we do our own time things together. I'll come in and arrange it. We'll have rehearsal. I'm like, we're going to do this, this, this. And she'll say, I think we should do this, this, this. And, you know, she'll play something, a riff or something and do it. So it's it's really a give and take in right. making the music come to life because the thing we're, we're doing is we're embodying it. So I, what I want people to understand is why you may come in and hear these familiar songs. Our objective is not necessarily to replicate what was on a record. Right. What I am tapping into is the spirit of these artists and the spirit of the message and carrying that forward and embodying that. So collaboration is at the heart of every aspect of what I do. I used to think I could do it by myself. And that, you know, I was the smartest person in the room. But now I understand the wisdom of listening and hearing and sometimes overriding what I feel personally to embody what someone else says, because nine times out of 10, it's come out 
in a way that exceeded what my expectations were. Thank you, everybody. This has been She Sang Freedom. This has been a wonderful conversation. I love where we've gone. We've covered a lot of the ground, and this is a, like I said, once again, very happy to be able to kick off our new season of More Than Rhythm with Dr. Tammy Canodal. So I just want to say before we close, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your vision with this series, but I also just want to thank you for your work. You know, you have been part of this community of scholars over the years that I've been able to collaborate with, and I watch you closely. You have modeled so much for me, but your brilliance, you know, inspires me to be better and do better and and to take my work to another level. And so I just want to personally thank you. Thank you for all that you do and how you work as a cultural worker in all of these communities that you engage with. You keep doing you. Juan Green, drums, Tanya Cox on bass. I'm Tammy Canoda. This has been She Sang Freedom. Thank you very much. Northern Rhythm Podcast is a production of the Columbia Museum of Art. Recording and editing by Drew Barron. Additional recording support by Pete Kutrakos. Today's episode was hosted by Dr. Brigida Johnson. And today's guest was Tammy Kernodal, whose musical project, She Sang Freedom, you heard throughout the episode. Additional production for the series is done by me, Wilson Baim. Additional assistance by Vic Johnson. Funding for this series is made possible by the Baker and Baker Foundation. And this program is supported by the Art Bridges Foundation's Access for All program. Thanks for listening.